Alpha and Omega, the story we find ourselves in. Chapter 17, The Return of the King and His Eternal Reign. The Apostle John, the last surviving apostle who shepherded believers to hold to the truth of Christ, live out his love and hope in his triumph. John, a fisherman by trade, was, along with his brother James, among the first disciples called to leave everything and follow Jesus. He was committed to Jesus, but was also known to have a prickly personality and was often given to quick-tempered responses. One time when the disciples encountered Samaritans who would not let them pass through their area, his first reaction was to ask Jesus if they could pretty please call down fire from heaven and incinerate them. Jesus said no. No wonder Jesus' pet nickname for John and his brother was Sons of Thunder. But John, along with Peter and James, was also part of Jesus' inner circle. Those three spent more time with Jesus than anyone else. And that intimate interaction with Jesus transformed John. His behavior and even his sense of identity shifted from a fractious son of thunder to the one whom Jesus loved. It seems that John never got over the fact that he, of all people, was loved by Jesus, or of Jesus' new command given the night before he was crucified, love one another as I have loved you. Love is the dominant theme of John's message to the church in his letters. John was a key leader of the church in Jerusalem for years and wrote his gospel to help people see Jesus as the Son of God, come to believe in him and have life in his name. He left Jerusalem a few years before its destruction, around the time Paul was killed, and moved his base of ministry to the church at Ephesus, from which he wrote his three brief practical letters to churches. Late in life, John was banished to Patmos, a small volcanic island in the Aegean Sea near modern-day Turkey that the Romans used for the incarceration of political prisoners. John was sentenced there for his faithfulness to preach and spread the gospel of King Jesus, and it was there that he had the vision that became the book of Revelation. The Revelation is one of a handful of Bible books written in what is called an apocalyptic or unveiling style, which refers to writing that is marked by startling imagery, metaphor, and a sense of mystery. Daniel and portions of Zechariah are the others. It is possible that this style was inspired by the Holy Spirit as a kind of code so that the churches under persecution in that day could receive its message freely. From the very beginning, God's greater story had been steadily moving towards the final restoration of all things to the way God intended then when he said, let there be. Revelation gives a fuller understanding of the shadows, hints, and whispers of that purpose that have come throughout the scripture. John began the revelation by describing an overwhelming encounter he had with the glorious reigning Christ. The first words of the book are crucial. The revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of John or of the end times or of prophecy, but of Jesus. Everything here is pointing to him and is understood in relationship to him. What John saw is reminiscent of the visions of God's glory granted to Moses and the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. It may also have taken him back years to a day on the mountaintop with James and Peter when they experienced the transfiguration of Jesus and got a glimpse of his divine glory. Every aspect of the vision was a reminder of Christ's character and mission. John wrote, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength in all its brilliance. John then received a series of letters or exhortations to be delivered from this reigning Christ to the church that apply both to the churches in that time, seven churches scattered across Asia Minor, and to all churches for all time. Each was similar in form, a greeting that identified the recipient and some aspect of Christ's character, then an affirmation and or reprimand for the church's life and ministry, followed by a call to repent and a warning if they don't, and then an exhortation to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and often a promise for those who faithfully obey. One of the most sobering of the letters is to the church in Ephesus. This church was founded by the Apostle Paul as a hub of kingdom mission activity, pastored by his protege Timothy, and chosen by the Apostle John to be the center of his later ministry. Yet King Jesus said this, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It seems that Jesus wants not only our minds right thinking about him and our wills right actions for him, but also our affections, right passions towards him. Next, John was given a series of visions that shifted between revealing events on earth and events around the throne of God across history. There was a scroll that described it all, sealed with seven seals that only Jesus could open. After the seventh seal is opened, seven trumpets are blown by seven angels to signal the initiation of the next aspect of God's plan for the end of the world. There are beasts at war, and the pouring out of seven bowls of God's wrath or plagues on the earth, and those who rebel against him. Most of the revealing in these strange visions is not about the future. It is a pulling back of the curtain so that we can see the spiritual battle for control of the throne of the universe that has shaped human history. The dragon, Revelation, is the same as the serpent from the garden in Genesis, who with abiding hatred challenged and continues to challenge the king's word, character, authority, and goodness. The city of Babylon, representing all the aspects of the proud and godless world system throughout all of human history, fiercely battles God, but is ultimately thrown down and destroyed. But in every moment, God has sovereignly and thoroughly been in control of it all. That's the meaning of the seven seals that can only be opened through the Lion of Judah who was slain like a lamb. Near the end of time on earth, an antichrist will rise to forcefully demand the allegiance of all people on earth and marshal them for one last attack against the king. The war for the throne will be finally and forever settled when Jesus Christ will physically and visibly return in glory as triumphant warrior, judge of all, and reigning king. He will come on a white war horse with eyes like a flame of fire, wearing a robe dipped in blood. 
And that's before the battle starts. So whose blood is it? It's his. The blood of the cross that conquered death and sin pointed to this victory in the end. First, 1 John 3, 8 says, He came to destroy the works of the devil. His word is pictured as a sharp sword that strikes down all of God's enemies. And as the battle ends, we see the name written on his robe and tattooed on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thus the king will affirm his ultimate triumph over rebels and traitors who attempted to overthrow him. After his defeat in this battle, the dragon Satan will be condemned forever to hell along with all who finally reject King Jesus and his salvation. Those whose names are not written in his book of life. The only names written there are those who have repented and believed the good news of Jesus' death in their place and his promise of life, who love him and find their highest joy and only hope in Christ alone. The battle ends. The king will reign alone on the throne of the universe. In the new heavens and the new earth, God's eternal kingdom purposes will be fulfilled, for he will make all things new. The one seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. The perfected people will be in a perfect place in the presence of the reigning king of glory, the consummation of the kingdom of God. Revelation 11 says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In God's eternal kingdom, the king will fully restore his original design for creation. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Earlier, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. The physical creation itself will function as it was designed with perfect harmony between plants and animals and seasons and people. There will be no more curse or thorns or natural disasters or groaning with longings for something better. The beauties and wonders that our dreams cannot now conjure nor our imaginations conceive. God's people will finally and fully possess the land God promised. In God's eternal kingdom, the king will fully restore his original intent for all things. Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is a picture of shalom, the wholeness of God's good and wise kingdom plan. When God draws history to a close, not one thing will be left unfinished, not one injustice unresolved, not one brokenness unrepaired, not one longing unfulfilled, not one grief uncomforted, not one pain unrelieved, not one disappointment unsatisfied, not one thing, circumstance, or person will be left undone. Put all that together, and you can see that God's new heaven and earth will finally and fully be very good. In God's eternal kingdom, the king will fully restore his original purpose for humanity. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is.
without sin. There'd be no more selfishness or broken hearts or tense relationships or disappointments or sadness or sickness or viruses or violence or pain or death in funerals. There will be no brokenness in body or mind, for we will have fully redeemed and resurrected bodies, perfectly designed for life forever in the King's holy presence. There will be no sin in us or around us to cloud our view of the King. Nothing will distort our full-hearted praise, love, and service of the King. Nothing will thwart our enjoyment of our King. You see, every human being in heaven will be like Jesus, displaying the Imago Dei, the image of God, reflecting the brightness of His glory. But there's even more. John describes a river flowing through the middle of the land. Along its banks, there is a tree of life with different fruit each month for nourishing and leaves for healing. This was the same tree that was in the center of the Garden of Eden. It was always there with the promise of a fruit we could one day enjoy if we would simply trust our King. Because of Jesus, we've come back to that tree again. One taste, and out of the depths of our soul, this eternal heavenly life will spark our intellect, stir our emotions and affections, and energize our wills. We will experience life beyond anything we have ever known or called life. God's created humanity will finally and fully be who he designed us to be. In God's eternal kingdom, The king will fully restore his original vision for Christ's bride at the church. Revelation 19 and 21 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. John said, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, for millennia as Christ's bride, the church of Jesus Christ in every place has pursued her Lord's call to bring glory to God in the power of the Spirit by being and making disciples who know, love, and obey Jesus, become increasingly like Jesus in thought, character, and action, and join Jesus on his mission in the world to serve others, spread the good news, and advance God's kingdom so even more join his family forever. Sometimes the church has enjoyed enjoyed seasons of growth and triumph when the church was faithful and passionate and the world leaned in to see and hear the Jesus we proclaim. But sadly, there have also been seasons of stagnation and failure when the church was compromised and apathetic and the world fought back and expressed hatred for Jesus. Through all those years and all those seasons, the church was always Christ's bride And he was always at work preparing his people for this very day. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now all that preparation time is done. This is the wedding day. The bride will be a splendor, spotless, unwrinkled, holy, and without blemish, 
adorned and clothed in righteousness because together the church will finally and fully match God's standard of what is perfectly good and beautiful and true. In God's eternal kingdom, the king will fully restore his original intimacy of Eden. Revelation 21 verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God created Eden as a home for his creation. It was a place of beauty, interest, fascination, but above all, fellowship and intimacy between God and his people. They took walks together in the evenings. Eden was home. Now, from that point, remember the contours of the story that have brought us here. In Eden, God created a perfect paradise where people would be at home in his presence. But after Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from that place and his presence. After God used Moses to deliver Israel from bondage in Egypt, he established the tabernacle as their central place of worship with the Holy of Holies containing the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence among them. Later... After seasons of trouble, rebellion, and defeat, the people brought the Ark of God back to Jerusalem. Solomon built the temple, and when the people gathered to dedicate it, the Lord descended in a cloud and filled it with his overwhelming presence. When Jesus came, God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. One paraphrase says God moved into the neighborhood, and John John said his presence could be seen and heard and touched on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. The great curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that any could come into the very presence of the Almighty. God had come near, but then ascended back to heaven. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on the people, and the presence of God took up residence as every believer became a temple of the Holy Spirit. It was a promise of what was to come, because on that day that John saw, the people of God would be gathered in the presence of God and the Lamb, The throne of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We will see him face to face in all of his unfiltered and overwhelming glory. God's people will fully and finally be at home with their father and king. This is where God's story has been headed all along. God's kingdom people will be in their king's presence in God's kingdom place, enjoying God's kingdom peace forever and ever. The king on the throne, the one who will forever be making all things new, says that he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All things in history and eternity are inside the boundaries of his life, love, sovereign purpose, and care. Once there, we will know complete joy and bottomless peace and live with it with our king for ages on ages, eternities on eternities. The promise of that day fills us with such anticipation and hope that we, the bride, join with the Spirit to invite anyone who hears and thirsts for the water of life to come, come to Him, 
As long as life on this planet endures, there is still time for anyone to repent of sin and believe Jesus and have this be their eternal destiny. Anyone can join God's story and live it forever. Come, drink of the water of life. The last thing John heard Jesus say was, Surely I am coming soon. And the old apostle whispered, Yes, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus. 